let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, you are our God, and we will ever praise your name. We ask that you might reveal to us your glory as we study who you are through your names. Show us all your goodness. Proclaim to us your name and your character that we might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We pray in his name. Amen. We continue our study of theology proper as we continue our consideration of the names of God. Uh, we spent two lectures on the name Jehovah, the Tetragrammaton, yud heh vav heh uh, which is translated L-O-R-D in all caps in our Old Testament English translations. Uh, now we proceed to the name Elohim, which is used in the Old Testament and chiefly translated as God. So we begin by considering the scriptural aspect of this subject of God's name Elohim. Uh, now before I do that, I want to emphasize that in our study of theology, it is very important to consider the scriptural aspect of these doctrines and of the character of God. Oftentimes, Reformed systematic theology gets a bad name. Maybe it deserves it in some cases, but for the most part, it's uh, unwarranted that it gets a bad name for being so focused on topics and theological formulas and propositions that it ignores the organic teaching of Scripture on these subjects. But I think just in the fact that our study which is grounded in most of the major historic reformed systematic theological works, it, the fact that our study is, is beginning with the names of God tells you that that's not true. That reformed systematic theology is grounded in what we might call biblical theology, and that at the very outset of seeking to understand God's character, we look at his names as they are organically revealed from Genesis to Revelation, but especially we begin in the Old Testament and we see the development of these names. We've seen that with Jehovah, Lord, uh, Kurios in the New Testament. We're going to see that here with the name Elohim. And one theologian in particular, James Henley Thornwell, in his treatment of theology proper, and especially in his section on the names of God, says this concerning this study of the names of God. He says, quote, we must trace them to their origin if we would understand the precise share they have contributed in the gradual progress of revelation to the Christian concept of God. Each has played a part in the production of the general result, and it is curious as well as instructive to trace the successive steps by which God has progressively unfolded himself in new aspects and relations to the human mind until it has reached its present relative maturity of knowledge. Many streams have discharged their contents into a common reservoir, and it is remarkable that as the reservoir has increased in quantity, the number of tributaries has been diminished. The Hebrew, the earliest language of Revelation, was quite copious in its names of God. The Greek, the next and only other language, with the exception of a very limited use of the Chaldee, the book of Daniel, employed by inspiration, has but two terms to designate the divine being as a total object of thought, uh, that being chiefly God and Lord. The point that I'm making here in ending this quotation is that Thornwell, in his systematic treatment of God's nature and attributes, deals with the names of God, and he says it's so important to study the names of God within the context of the development from the Old Testament into the New. So in his systematic treatment of all of these doctrinal topics, he's focused on drawing out the contours and the, the nuances of progressive revelation 
in the scriptures. And that's what he's commenting on there. And I just wanted to point this out because there are some in the Reformed Church today who try to give the impression that if you do systematic theology in the way that our forefathers did it, that somehow you're shortchanging biblical theology and that you're essentially doing something that has very little grounding in the organic progressive revelation of scripture. That's not the case. Systematic theologians have been taking biblical theology into account in their method for centuries. And so keep that in mind. We're not jumping straight to a list of attributes and scholastic formulas. We're beginning with the names of God. In fact, we're beginning with the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, which you can see in your handout. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right from the outset, literally, in the beginning, God. This is the name that is assigned to God in the very first verse of the Bible, and it has to be taken as very serious and significant by us, because as we're trying to understand who God is, what's the very first thing he says about himself in his word? He says that he is God, Elohim. Then you look at chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So this, this is the, the passage, chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 26, that we're going to be focusing on as we begin our study of this name Elohim, which is, as, as you can see here, translated God. That's interesting, as we're going to see that in this passage, you have both plural and singular pronouns attributed to this Elohim. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Then at the end of the verse, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he, that is singular, created them, plural. So Elohim is assigned both plural and singular uh, pronouns, which is, as uh, Thornwell says, curious. These are things that are interesting. We want to study this name Elohim and see why it, just from the very outset of biblical revelation, this name is used in such a curious way. First, we consider its origin and derivation. Again, guided by Thornwell's encouragement there. We need to know where does this come from and what can we say about this name in terms of its construction and maybe some of the, the idea behind this particular word, Elohim. Well, first we need to know that it is plural. Elohim, plural. It's the plural of a very rare singular form of this word, Eloah, which is almost never used. It's, it's Elohim in the plural, but Eloah would be the rare singular form. And this name Eloah or Elohim in the plural is often associated with strength and might. Now, it's debated whether the notion of strength and might actually predates the application of, of, of this name to God or if it's applied to God and God is strong and mighty and so then this, this uh, root of the word is applied more broadly as strength or might. But the point is, for the Hebrew, it would bring to mind strength and might, the strong and mighty one, uh, Elohim. Now, you, you can see in the translation God that when it refers to the God of the Bible, it is used in a singular way. It's not translated gods. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth, but it's translated as God. So it's a plural form, but we understand it of the one true God. Very interesting. There's a shortened form of this, L, which is sometimes used in 
compound names of God such as El Shaddai, God Almighty. So when they're wanting to say something about Elohim, they'll often just take the El at the beginning of the word and then apply it more broadly. El Shaddai, God Almighty, uh, which is really Elohim Almighty, but again, El, that first syllable, indicates God himself and, and is used sometimes to refer to something being strong or mighty or great. Psalm 36, in some psalm translations, will speak of the mountains of God, and the word El is used, or it'll speak of the mighty mountains, uh, and it's the word El, which can mean a reference to God or a reference to strength, might, and greatness in general. There's debate over the precise origin of Elohim. Some say that it derives from an Arabic word, Allah, which you can immediately recognize from the Muslim world. Allah, which means to fear or worship. And if that's the origin of Elohim, then it would chiefly convey the idea of the great and awesome object of worship. The one that we worship with reverence and godly fear. Whether that's the origin is a question, but the point is, I mean, it would be orthodox and biblical to say that, of course, God is the great and awesome object of worship, but that's the idea here, that it's a common root found in that Arabic word Allah. Secondly, others tell us that it's a Hebrew word Allah, which means to swear an oath. And you can see this in the book of Genesis when Jacob and Laban are going back and forth about various agreements that they had. And um, they're in that chapter, is it chapter 29 or 31, something like that. Uh, there's a reference to swearing an oath early in the chapter that uses the ordinary Hebrew word for swearing an oath. But then later in the chapter, this word Allah is used in reference to swearing an oath. And people uh, like Thornwell, for instance, would say it's not so much Allah, the Arabic term to fear or worship, that's the origin of Elohim, but rather Allah, the Hebrew term for swearing an oath. And so this word, right from the first verse of the Bible, Moses is conveying to God's people that it's our covenant God who has, as it were, sworn an oath in covenant with his people that created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm not suggesting there's conclusive evidence for that, but just to say that is a prominent theory as well. Others attribute it to the Hebrew word elyon, which means to ascend or to go up. And this would bring the idea of uh, God as the exalted one. And the compound name El Elyon is God Most High, and that's used throughout the Old Testament as well. Uh, the issue with saying that it's derived from Elyon, however, the, the problem that arises is which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, is it the case that um, Elyon is the, uh, is the basis for Elohim, or is it just brought in later after there's this concept of God as Elohim and El, and God is high and lifted up, and so on and so forth? The name El Elyon arises, and and people would say, well, maybe Elyon, exalted one, flows out of Elohim, not vice versa. So it's difficult to say. Uh, predominantly, most Reformed theologians hang their hat on the first theory, that this comes from the Arabic word Allah. Now, that doesn't mean that Jehovah and Allah are the same God, understand. Because this word Elohim, we'll see later, is also applied to false gods. Okay, so that the Muslims are worshiping a false god, but there's a common root in their language that may uh, have some commonality with the Hebrew language that would provide an explanation for Elohim uh, from this word to fear or worship. That's what most scholars think. Thornwell disagrees. He, think it's, he thinks it's a reference to God as our oath-swearing covenant God. Uh, more could be said, but those are, those are the options. I don't think these are that far off. Certainly God is the exalted one, as the great and awesome object of worship. He certainly is our covenant God, so perhaps we can think of all these things when we think of him as Elohim. 
Now, the translation we find, first of all, when the Hebrew was translated into Greek in the Septuagint prior to the days of Christ, the extant standard Greek copy of the Old Testament that was distributed throughout the Greek and then the Roman Empire, uh, translated Elohim as Theos, which some suggest means to establish, or that it comes from a root meaning to establish. Uh, it has reference to God as the supreme sovereign being. Uh, again, I'm just taking lots of things that I've read and trying to condense the, the common explanation here, Theos. This is the word from which we get theology. Okay, we're doing theology proper, the study of the doctrine of God. And that Greek word theos has um, had a huge impact even on the English language. Theos, the theology. So that's the translation in Greek. And then in English, we simply translate both Elohim in the Hebrew and Theos in the Greek as God. Perhaps the etymology of the word God in English comes from the idea of the highest good. God is the highest good. And when God showed his glory to Moses, it was showing him all my goodness. So this is the thought. You can look that up in your etymological dictionary, but it's, it's likely that it comes from the word good. But in any event, uh, we translate Elohim in the Hebrew when it's or in the, in the English from the Hebrew as God. But it's also rendered in other passages in the Hebrew, gods, mighty ones, angels, judges, and sometimes it's, uh, there's a, some translations will use this word and, and, and translate the word divine if it's in reference to something else. Because the word divine has to do with God. So God gods, mighty ones, angels, judges, or that which is divine. Let's consider how this usage and application of Elohim works itself out, the usage and application. There's a proper sense of Elohim. And when we say proper, think about the title of our lesson or our course. Theology proper. So, to say theology proper is to distinguish from theology as it corresponds to the actual word theology, doctrine of God, study of God. That's theology proper because it's specifically what that word means in particular versus the broader, more generic definition of theology as the study of the whole counsel of God, whether it be Christology, the study of Christ, eschatology, the study of the last things. We can use the word theology in reference to all kinds of biblical ologies in a more improper sense or broader generic sense or informal sense of analogy. But the proper sense of theology is in the word itself, the study of God, the doctrine of God. So when we speak of the word Elohim in its proper sense, we're saying that it refers to God himself in its proper sense. There are other ways, as we'll see in a moment, that it's used improperly, not inappropriately. When we say improperly, we just mean in a more informal sense, in a derivative sense, by way of analogy. But when you see the word Elohim as a Hebrew, the first thing you think of as the proper meaning, apart from any other context that would steer you in a different direction, you think God. And that's the idea here. God. God himself. That's the proper sense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in referring to God, this word Elohim, and if we had time, we could show also the word Theos in the New Testament Greek, can refer to God in two different ways. First, the divine essence the triune God, what, what all three persons have in common, the divine essence. And so Genesis 1 verse 26 is an undeniable example of the word Elohim being used in this sense, God 
in, in terms of his essence that is common to all three persons. Not God referring to the Father or to the Son or to the Spirit in particular, but God referring to the triune God in his one essence. Because it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God did not make man in the image of the Father or the image of the Holy Spirit or the image of the Son in particular. The scripture teaches that man is made not in the image of the personal properties of the Godhead, the things that distinguish the Father, Son, and Spirit, but man is made in the image of God, in the image of God's essence, his character, what is common to all three persons, the divine nature. So the word Elohim at the end of verse 26 of Genesis 1 has to refer to the divine essence as a whole, not to any particular divine person. Secondly, Elohim or Theos in the Greek can be used to refer to specific divine persons. And it could be argued that Genesis 1.1 might actually refer specifically to the Father. Why? Well, if you look at the early verses of Genesis 1, you see that God created the heavens and the earth. We have numerous examples. I'm not going to chase this down just for time's sake, but if we wanted to, we could chase it down. Numerous examples where it speaks of God the Father creating. As, as the one who in, in the triune Godhead takes the initiative. He's the one associated with that initial act of creation. As we say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But we're told, if you go to the early verses of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, if you go to Colossians 1, that the Father created all things through the Son. That by Christ, everything that was made was made. And you can see that in Genesis 1, if we take Elohim in verse 1 to be the Father, that what does the Father do? He speaks the Word, let there be light. And so John 1, 1 would say, well, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word is the one by whom the worlds were made. Well, Christ is, as it were, the spoken word. God created the world by his word, that is, through his son. And then in those early verses of Genesis 1, you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. So you have the Father creating through his son and by his spirit. And, of course, that would make sense then for Elohim to be plural. But the point is that that could be debated. Maybe someone would say, well, in the beginning, God created is a reference to all three persons, and, and they would uh, uh, say that I'm not rightly dividing the word or something. But undeniably, this term Elohim and Theos in the Greek is used of specific divine persons. We have an example in Psalm 45, verse 6, which is a, a psalm about King Jesus. And it's quoted in Hebrews 1, verse 8, in application to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 45, verse 6, it says, concerning Messiah, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. It goes on to say, verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So here we have the word God applied to the God-man Messiah, the Son of God, Christ himself. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But then the one who is God, who sits on the throne, is referred to in this way, therefore God, your God. So the Father is referred to as the God of the Messiah. The Messiah has the divine nature, so he's God sitting on the throne. And then it says, God, your God, has anointed you. So again, the Father anoints the Son with the Holy Spirit, who is also God, although that's not referenced there. But you see the Trinity here, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So it tells us that the Messiah will be a man with companions, but he will also be God. As man, 
he submits to God the Father as God. As God, he's equal with the Father. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The point is, just in those two verses, Elohim is applied distinctly to two different persons within the Trinity. And uh, Acts 5, 3, and 4, Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, you've not lied to men but to God. And in the context, he says you've lied to the Holy Spirit, meaning that in, in the Greek, uh, assuming he was speaking Greek, um, but maybe he was speaking Aramaic and, and Luke put it into Greek, but, but at, at the very least, theos, God, is applied to the Holy Spirit there by inference. So uh, one other verse I want to point out, and Lord willing, when we get to the Trinity, there's so much more to be said here about the use of God in reference to the Father sometimes, in reference to the Son, in reference to the whole Trinity. But Psalm 33, verse 6, when it speaks of creation, listen to this. By the word of Jehovah, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth breath being the word ruach or spirit. So creation was done by the Lord, Jehovah, and all the host of them, uh, or sorry, by the word of Jehovah. So you've got the Father, who's referenced as the Lord here, Jehovah. Then you have the word of Jehovah, which is the Son, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth, the spirit of his mouth. All three persons of the Trinity are referenced and uh, associated with the creation in Psalm 33, verse 6. So that's the proper sense of Elohim or Theos, God himself. There's also improper senses of this word as well. Again, we're not saying inappropriate because they're biblical senses, but they're not the main sense, not the primary formal sense of this word. And so, for instance, uh, Elohim can be uh, utilized and applied in the Old Testament by way of function or profession. Let's think by way of function here. There are false gods who take the place of Jehovah as the object of worship. These gods don't actually exist. They are false. They are counterfeit, okay, like Allah and so on and so forth. But the fact is, by way of function, in the worship of men, they take the place of God, and so they are objects of human worship. Even if they don't really exist, they function as gods. Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods, Elohim, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And uh, this is referenced throughout the Old Testament many, many times, as I'm sure we're all aware. False gods are referred to as Elohim in the plural, false gods. And you know who it's talking about by way of context. Context. There are some cases where it's unclear, such as the end of Isaiah chapter 8, just before you get to that famous uh, passage about those in darkness have seen the great light. There's a reference in Isaiah chapter 8 to the people that are in darkness, cursing their king and their God. Isaiah 8, verse 21. Cursing their king and their God. And New King James capitalizes God and puts it in the singular, but you could argue that they're cursing their king and their gods because they're in darkness. They're in apostasy. Um, they're perhaps worshiping idols and coming to the point of uh, being dissatisfied with these false gods and with their political leaders. In any event, there are differences of opinion in some cases. But that's by way of function. Also by way of profession, in New Testament Greek, we have that famous example, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, where Satan is called the god of this world, the god of this age. It doesn't mean that Satan has real authority over the world or over this age, but he professes to be the God of this age. You could even say he functions in that way, that people obey his agenda. Uh, he's at work in the children of disobedience. He says, uh, you will not surely die for your sin, and you can be like God, and so do whatever you want, and people follow that satanic agenda. And so he functions 
and also by way of his own profession as the God of this world, of this age. And, uh, and that word theos is, is applied to him in that improper sense, informal sense. Uh, but it's clear from Scripture that there actually is only one Elohim. Uh, there is only one true God in the proper sense. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6 tells us that in heaven and earth there are lords many and gods many in terms of the ones that people worship. There are lords many and gods many. Uh, but... Uh, he says this, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Uh, Jeremiah 10, verses 10 and 11, also asserts the exclusive claim of the God of the Bible to this name Elohim or Jehovah. Jeremiah 10.10, but Jehovah is the true God, the true Elohim. He is the living God. Other ones are all dead and don't even exist. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Uh, And uh, verse 11, the gods, Elohim in the improper sense, that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. So you've got the false gods, but there's only one true God. And Jesus says that's essential. That's essential to saving faith and to the the, uh, possession of eternal life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. He doesn't say the only person subsisting in the only true God. He's saying that the Father is Jehovah. The Father is fully God and that the God that the Father is is the only God. It's also true that Jesus is that God. He subsists in that divine nature. But he's not saying the Father alone is God, but that the Father is the only God. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus was probably not speaking Greek there to his disciples. Perhaps he used Elohim. Uh, I'd have to look more into the Aramaic languages to the equivalent there, but he might have been speaking Aramaic. But, but the idea you, that uh, there is only one Elohim is essential to saving faith unto eternal life. Also, there are other improper senses of Elohim by way of analogy, by way of analogy. So you have uh, God sends Moses to Pharaoh. Moses chickens out and asks for Aaron's help. God says, okay, fine. God's not happy with that, but he says, okay, I'll, I'll let Aaron be your spokesman and you will be God unto Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet. So by way of analogy, Moses, as the one who represents God as a prophet, you might say, um, he is God to Pharaoh, and then Aaron is his spokesman. So there's a, an improper, informal, analogous reference to Elohim being Moses. Also, you have instances where the word Elohim is translated as angels. For instance, in uh, Hebrews 1, 6, and 7, there is a quotation of Psalm 97, 7. And I'm not going to look all of these up, so if you want to jot that down. In Hebrews 1, 6, and 7, there's a quotation from Psalm 97, verse 7, in which it applies it to Christ, let all the angels of God, or let all the angels bow down before Him. And if you go to the Hebrew in Psalm 97, 7, it's let all the gods, let all the Elohim bow down before Him. And the Greek translation that the apostle is using there of Psalm 97, verse 7, translates Elohim as angels. Whereas the Hebrew, if you just translated it Elohim as gods, you could translate it that way. A lot of translations do. But the the Greek Jewish scholars translated it as angels. And it's clear in Hebrews 1, 
And then in an instance that we're going to look at in a second in Hebrews 2, that the apostle is stressing the idea that the angels are, in fact, the ones referenced there. So what he's saying is, we talked about this last time, about when the New Testament apostles quote the Greek version of the Old Testament, and sometimes it differs with the Hebrew. I think in this case, it's not differing with the Hebrew. The, the Greek is not differing with the Hebrew. It's translating Elohim as angels. It's, it's not a paraphrase. It's an actual translation. As we'll see, Elohim can apply to earthly judges. It can apply to Moses, as we saw. It, it's, it's used in these improper senses, and that's how the Septuagint interprets it. And the apostles seem to agree with that that Elohim there is not a reference to false gods, though it certainly could be, but it's the angels bowing before him. Uh, perhaps the most familiar instance of this comes in Hebrews 2, verse 7, where the apostle makes reference to Psalm 8, verse 5. And it's clear from the remainder of the chapter that he understands Psalm 8, verse 5, and, and the surrounding verses there, to refer to angels. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 7, he's quoting now from Psalm 8, verse 5, You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. So he's quoting Psalm 8, verse 5. And if you look later on in verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And then later in the chapter, he tells us, verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So that there's a continual reference there to the angels as ministering spirits. So why does he do that? Well, again, he's taking the Septuagint in that instance as a faithful translation that Elohim in that verse does not mean that man was made a little lower than God, but that man was made a little lower or could easily be taken as for a little while, as you see in your marginal note probably. Uh, man was made for a little while lower than the angels. We know in heaven that we'll be like the angels. Jesus even uses the phrase equal to the angels. If we apply this to Christ, he was made during his humiliation lower than the angels for a short period of time, for a little while, and has now been exalted. As Paul says, now we see Jesus fulfilling Psalm 8. He was humbled for a little while, but now he's been exalted above the angels. And so, the apostles interpret this as angels, not as being made a little lower than God. Now, in our controversial section, uh, well, our polemical se uh, section, which may be controversial as well, but in that section, we're going to look more in depth at what is the best translation of Psalm 8, verse 5. But, uh, and that'll be in our lecture the next time we revisit this. We're, we're not going to, um, this is a two-part lecture. But understand, Elohim in Psalm 8, verse 5, if it's translated as God, it does present some concerns because if we say that either Adam or Christ in his human nature were created a little lower than God, that creates some really big problems for our doctrine of God being infinitely above the creature. The human nature of Adam and the human nature of Christ are finite and there's an infinite distance, as our confession says, chapter 7, section 1, between the creator and the creature. So if we understand it as God made any of his creatures just a, a tad, you know, one rung lower than God, that puts God on a chain of being with the creature and destroys the creator-creature distinction. I don't think people are intending to undermine the entire fabric of our theology with that translation, but unfortunately that's the impression that it gives a little lower than God, um, as if there's a chain of being on the way up to God. Um, also, uh, you can see that uh, 
it, it would be better served to translate it for a little while lower than the angels, right? It fits in with the experience of Christ who was for a little while in humiliation, then exalted above the angels and we exalted in him. Um, more could be said, but uh, we'll, we'll look at some of the Psalter translations next time and evaluate those. Now, uh, we do want to, uh, with God's help, just finish our first page of the outline here. So we've seen the improper senses of the application and usage of Elohim in the Old Testament. Let's look at the meaning and significance of Elohim in distinction from the name Jehovah. First, Elohim, as we mentioned, is plural. And so Jehovah, in the great Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah, our God, is one. Jehovah, the name Jehovah, presents God as one self-existent essence. We said it refers to his utter uniqueness in his nature as he transcends over all his creatures through his infinity, his eternity, his immutability, his self-existence. Jehovah speaks to him as one self-existent essence. But Elohim, by way of its plural form, indicates to us, though as Calvin pointed out, this should not be our leading argument as we're trying to prove the Trinity from the Old Testament. This should not be our, our decisive argument by any stretch. But Elohim does indicate plurality within that one essence of Jehovah. So when you combine these two terms, you see Jehovah our God is one and Elohim, Jehovah Elohim, he, there is a plurality within that one transcendent God. Also, Elohim is relational. Whereas Jehovah speaks to God's essence in himself, his transcendence, his incommunicable attributes that are not reflected in the image of God, as I said, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. But Elohim represents God's perfections in relation to his creatures. Now, what do we mean by God's perfections? That's not just a synonym for attributes. When you see a sermon or a treatise on divine perfections, or if you see perfection referenced in our standards or in some theological book that you're reading, God's perfections are those things that are present in part in his creatures. In the world around us, you can see power, you can see within, if you include both man and beast and the elements and the world and the solar system and the universe, you can see order and wisdom and all these different things in the world around us, in part, and certainly in human beings made in God's image. At least in a best case scenario, you can see uh, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so when we speak of God's perfections, we're saying these are the attributes that, that are the perfect form of what we see reflected in part in God's creation. So Elohim is a more relational term that tends to emphasize that aspect that's portrayed in God's image. The things we see in part here that reflect his divine nature that is perfect overall. So you see this, in, for instance, in relation to God's creation, that he's called the God of heaven and earth, Genesis 24, 3 and 7. I looked up in the Old Testament, and I, I'm happy to be corrected here, but I couldn't find any examples of the name Jehovah being used with this phraseology of um, my Jehovah, my Jehovah, our Jehovah. Anytime there's any possession or relationship or covenantal affinity or creational bond, it's always Elohim. Uh, he's the God of heaven and earth. He's Jehovah, the God of heaven and earth, but the word that's used in that, you know, the, the God of, it's always Elohim, the Elohim of creation, the Elohim of the heavens, the Elohim of the earth. It's that term God that scripture uses to connect with his creation. Also to his image bearers, Jeremiah 32, 27, he's called the God of all flesh. 
Job 1.5, the angels are called the sons of God, that they reflect certain attributes of God. They're his reasonable creatures. You could say they have knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, uh, at least the good ones at this point. But uh, the God of all flesh, the God in relationship to all humanity, the God in relationship to the angels that he has made. In Genesis 1.26, it doesn't say that we're made in the image of Jehovah, but that we're made in the image of God. Of course, we are made in the image of Jehovah, but the, the term that's used to express that is God, not Jehovah. It's the image of God. Genesis 9 verse 6, uh, man is made in the image of God. Acts 17 verse 28, it's the unknown God in whom we live and move and have our being, according to the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill. And Luke 3.38, Adam is a son of God, Theos, which again translates Elohim in most instances. So when God relates to his creatures, he is not the Jehovah of his people, although he is, but it's expressed the Elohim of Israel. His covenant people... Uh, speak of him as the Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Elohim of the Hebrews, the Elohim of Israel. Uh, The Lord says, I will be your Elohim and you shall be my people. So this is a very intimate word. It takes God's transcendent character as Jehovah and it brings it near. He is our God. He is my God. He is uh, our God and we are his people. And there are certain related names as well that serve to deepen this uh, experience of piety. Uh, As I mentioned, God is El, the Mighty One. And if you connect that with Elyon, He is God Most High. El Elyon, God Most High. Uh, That's very important because it emphasizes God's transcendence. Uh, the, the term God, which is applied, and I need to circle back because I missed a, a point here, but um, when God is applied to angels, or the, the term God is applied to judges, as I'll show in a moment, uh, sometimes the Lord seeks to emphasize that in the proper sense, He's the only transcendent true God. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 14, when Lucifer says, I will be like the Most High. So when the creator-creature distinction is in play, often that term, that name God Most High is given to to re-emphasize his sovereign supremacy. Also El Shaddai, God Almighty, God All-Sufficient, is anything too hard for the Lord. And Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God who is imminent with us. God with us, Emmanuel. So we're going to look next time at a number of uh, doctrinal and polemical implications, also some practical application. But the, the fact of the matter is, this is a crucial name of God. And it's a name that we're to cling to, my God. Now, before we end, I do have to just uh, make this point because a lot of what I've said hinges on it. And I will be extremely brief here. Uh, The name Elohim is applied to judges. Psalm 82, 1 and 2. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. It's Elohim in the congregation of the gods, as some translations say. But who are these gods? Who are these mighty ones? He judges among uh, the gods, Sorry, the first reference to mighty is El, and the second one is Elohim, but you get the point. The mighty ones, the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? It goes on, verse 6, I said you are gods, and all of your children, all of you are the children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth. So the judges and princes are the gods, the mighty ones that are referenced here. And God says, I called you gods. These are the judges of Israel that were appointed in the book of Exodus. 
he calls them gods in the book of Exodus. He calls them Elohim, and here he's holding them accountable. I called you this in an improper sense, but you didn't honor me as the Most High God, so now you're going to see the fruit of your ways, and you will die like men. Uh, It's interesting, these verses in Exodus. Exodus 21, verse 6. You'd never, you'd almost never know that the word Elohim is used here. Uh, my Bible, which has numerous footnotes, does not footnote this, but Exodus 21.6, speaking of a judicial case involving a Hebrew servant and master, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. But the judges there is the Elohim. Uh, the mighty ones, the gods, the Elohim, the ones who have been given the uh, representative authority of God with the power of the sword in the civil government. Uh, you can see this in uh, Exodus 22, 8 and 9. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods And at the end of verse 9, whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. That is Elohim. So that's why we say it can be used improperly to speak of angels, such as Psalm 8.5. It can be used, as in the book of Exodus, to refer to human judges. All of these things are important, and all of them raise some very important questions about God. You know, how do we wrestle with the fact that the name Elohim is applied more broadly? How do we understand that and how do we apply that in our theological uh, system and in our practical application? We'll look at that next time. Does anyone have any questions about what we've covered so far? All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful unto you that you are our God and we are your people and that we can come to you and say even as our Savior in his darkest moment on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We thank you, O God, that you ultimately did not forsake him other than turning away from him and casting your wrath upon him, but you did raise him from the dead and you will never ultimately forsake your people who call to you in our deepest, darkest moments, my God, my God. Write these things upon our hearts, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.